Well, when I came back in Rwanda in 1994, uh, was a terrible year here in Rwanda. 1994 was the climax of the genocide, uh, which actually had been in making for many years. But 94, something that have never happened before happens. A million people get killed in just 90 days. We are talking about a million people not in this big area. Rwanda is a small country, size of mainland state, so it's really small. But also the population was small, was 7 million people. So over 10% of the population gets killed in around 90 to 100 days. Life is a journey, and most of it is spent in the in-between, in the middle places. But every once in a while, you find yourself on the other side of something. These are the stories we are telling here. We believe that stories change the world, and we hope that when you hear stories of lives changed, obstacles overcome, lives broken, lives mended, and hope found, you'll actually see yourself in their stories. Now more than ever, we need each other, and we need each other's stories. This is On the Other Side. Hey there, we're your hosts for this podcast. I'm Jamie. And I'm Aaron. Today's show is absolutely incredible. Maybe you're somewhat familiar with the Rwandan genocide in the early 90s, or maybe this is going to be a completely new story for you. Back in January, Jamie got to sit down with Pastor Charles, who was born to a Rwandan family who lived as refugees in Uganda. Charles's parents fled Rwanda after the first genocide in 1959. And after attending college in Kampala, Uganda's capital city, Charles began ministry in a nearby suburb to work with a church planter. Charles has also been a missionary in England and Northern Ireland. And in 1994, something that had been going on in Rwanda for decades came to a devastating climax. One million people were murdered in just 90 days. And in 1995, Charles learned that his father had returned to their home country of Rwanda just months after the ending of genocide. Of course, Charles followed. Even though the war had ended, Charles saw signs of death everywhere. When he saw the orphaned, the widow, and the homeless, Charles knew he had to do something to help these people. Today, his organization, Africa New Life, provides for more than 10,000 children who are on track toward high school graduation, vocational training, or a university degree. So here's Pastor Charles' story of On the Other Side of Genocide. Listen as he tells us what life was like for him in 1995 when he came back to his home country of Rwanda. Okay, so I'm here in uh, Kigali with Pastor Charles of New Life Bible Church. And um, this is a part of our series called On the Other Side, like I told you. And I would love to talk with you about what your life has been like on the other side of the genocide. Uh, because you, uh, your family uh, was in Uganda during the genocide and then 1994 hit and you came back. And so I would like for you to walk us through when you... Um, came back, and then tell us what life has been like for you past 1994. Well, when I came back in Rwanda in 1994, 
uh, was a terrible year here in Rwanda. 1994 was the climax of the genocide, uh, which actually had been in making for many years. But 94, something that have never happened before happens. A million people get killed in just 90 days. We are talking about a million people not in this big area. Rwanda is a small country, size of mainland state, so it's really small. But also the population was small, was 7 million people. So over 10% of the population gets killed in around 90 to 100 days. Uh, obviously, the rest of us, we on the other side uh, as refugees waiting for the genocide to end. And in that moment, actually, what happened is the rest of your family, a family that was in Rwanda, gets killed. In uh, 95, I walk into the country for my first time with mixed feelings. A feeling of excitement that finally I can go home. But what kind of home? Uh, when you start opening up layers of the, the home, is that the home is full of blood, actually full of physical dead bodies. Amen. You listen to these Old Testament prophets talking about death and the uh, bones of dead people, exactly the same thing in Rwanda. You are seeing physical bodies of people killed with bones everywhere, accompanied with a smell everywhere, and um, loads and loads of clothes for the dead people and their own properties. And uh, from one village to another village, there are people looking for their family members who survived. And then uh, on the other side of life, there are refugees uh, trying to come back in, back to the country, but there are also refugees leaving the country. Like there's an exodus getting in, there's an exodus getting out. And then um, there are orphans, but more than orphans, also lost children who are completely separated from their parents. And what used to be schools, like a, a primary, secondary school, public school, like what you have in the U.S., they turned into orphanages. Mm -hmm. Human beings, kids, packed in. The entire place smelled death. It was a dead place. It was a darker, really darker place. I think we used to go home around six o'clock in the evening. People, were big, people would start deserting the streets. Like around six, you are getting off the streets see, and getting confined in your home and location. Mm. Um, you really could not see hope how things are going to turn around. The only sense was that we had a good military that had liberated the country. It was safe, not everywhere, 
but in some confined area we are safe and you'd only operate within those safe confined area there were no basic needs like groceries <laughs> that was like a uh, very hard to get them uh, but you know people were not so much in concerned about the groceries, they were more concerned about surviving death, running away from death, hoping to live tomorrow, and what does the future hold for us? Nearly there was no clear government. There was a group that had liberated the country, but you're talking about a country with no constitution, a country with no money, because the killers robbed the banks. Um, a country with no medical care. I remember specifically uh, I got an accident in Rwanda just after the war. We were driving from the capital here in Kigali to Butari, which is about um, two, three hours from the city to preach in a university that side under crusade and we got an accident and right there when we got the accident is we just sat with our wounds in a critical condition just on the roadside because there's no car to take you off the roadside there's no ambulance there's nothing there's no one passing by and we're just on the roadside bleeding mm. In fact, I remember in the process, the United Nations military, the UN military, by God's grace, they came and found us on the roadside waiting, not knowing what to do, parked us in the car. They just parked us in the car with our blood flowing to hospital. And those days, there were no doctors. There were a few humanitarian workers I remember my experience was that two of us wounded in the accident were put on the same bed. And for the stitches, we just are actually, they would stitch you when you're feeling mm. everything, like there was no, not numb the area. That was Rwanda. That was how we lived. That was our life. And that was a difficult situation uh, to be in. Yeah, so that, yeah. that is Rwanda just after the genocide. So when you came back in 1995, um, and this is the scene that you're seeing, this is what you're experiencing, was there any hope yet that Rwanda would rebuild? Or was it, in, how long did you guys live in the state of unknown, uncertainty, emergency? Uh, there was no hope. I mean, from a human point of view, there was no hope. Rwanda was a failed state, like Somalia. Um, all the neighbors around, the people who visited Rwanda, they expected nothing to really change. In fact, during that time, more people left the country. They left the country to Uganda, to Kenya. Uh, those days, a number of them to America. You're going to find a number of Rwandans in different cities of America who left after, after the genocide mm -hmm. and got asylum in America because there seemed to be no hope and recovery. The first 
three, four, nearly five years, the war continued on on the west, on the th- in the southern part of the country. The rebels were still coming back. The killers had hidden themselves in Congo. They were still coming back to fight. So you're talking about the first five years, nothing was happening. Six years, nothing was happening apart from really survival. The turn around started around year 2002. Eight years later. Ah, we were able to get a new constitution. We were able to get a more reasonable parliament. We started having uh, good leadership. Uh, president Kagame became officially the president of Rwanda. Uh, up to that time, he wasn't the president. There was another guy who was a president in between, and he resigned. Uh, he was in the military, but not really the president. So when he became the president, he, he really had a vision for the country. And I, I want to hear about his vision because I've heard you talk about it and it's lovely. But before you tell me his vision, in those eight years, was there peace here? Or was there still remnants of hate and killing and fighting? Oh, the, the, no, there was no peace. Especially in the southern part of the country, there was no peace. There was still hatred. The killers were trying to come back to kill. Uh, the neighbors between Hutu and Tusi people did not trust each other because you actually didn't know who you are living with. Peace started coming when we started the reconciliation campaigns. Because those reconciliation campaigns allow the neighbors to talk to each other. So basically what happened, the, the killers who were in the prison, over 140,000 men in prison, uh, the government decided that they're going to start releasing them not to go home, but to come back to the community and seek forgiveness from the community. Then families would gather, villages would gather to come see them. And they would actually know that that guy is the one who killed my mom, killed my dad. I know him. He was my neighbor. Mm. And then a number of these guys would start asking for forgiveness, they became very remorseful and repentant for what actually happened. Because remember, these are people who knew each other, they were neighbors, they grew up together, went to the same school, uh, lived in the same neighborhood, drank at the same local beer, which is a big thing here, local beer. Um, They started asking for forgiveness. But also in the process, of asking for forgiveness, they would disclose information where they buried the, the people they killed. Because remember that time, still many families didn't know where their dead are located. They had buried a lot of people in huge mass, mass graves and hid them. So out of that, a campaign for repentance, 
for reconciliation, started bringing people together. Then the Hutu and the Tutsi would come together really for reconciliation, but also for most people, they wanted to know where they are dead, where are buried. Mm. They wanted to be done with the death. Was this reconciliation process that you're talking about that you said that's when the country started to turn around? Was that a part of the new president's idea? Was that his campaign? It was part of the new president's idea. I mean, that is a, it's a bold campaign. It was a bold campaign. I think it was a hard campaign for him, very hard, because there were people on, the, on, the, on, on, on two sides. There are families that are actually saying, our families were killed and you're letting these people go and you're releasing them. Uh, people were terrified that, that they are actually going to kill them again. Which was, which happened is some people are really t- terrible. They will be released and try to kill people again. Uh, but the numbers were very small. The numbers were containable uh, rather than what had happened in the past. But also the military was very aggressive that they would curb any insecurity. Really the key was that we had a dedicated military to rebuilding the nation. And we had a dedicated leader who I don't understand how God worked in his life because he himself was a survivor. Mm-hmm. He was taken out of this country as a little boy uh, running away as refugees in 1959, grew up in a refugee camp himself. He had all the reasons to be bitter and to rehearse what happened. But somehow God worked in his mind and the mind of many, many, many leaders. And my thinking is that there were so many prayer warriors. Mm-hmm. I mean, there were people praying. I think the battle in this land was won on the knees of few minority Christians. There were mm-hmm. Christians praying and seeking God for the peace of this land. Mm-hmm. And he turns around and he says, we're going to focus on reconciliation. We're not going to rehearse the hatred, we're going to have to have this stop with this generation. Well, then after he stopped that and promoted the reconciliation, he moved that on an institutional level whereby uh, they, they started changing laws that promoted a division from how you get your ID from tribal identi- uh, ethnic identifications, uh, sharing of leadership and governance uh, from being able to get services without disclosing your ethnicity. Mm. And uh, that went on the institutional level and he started enforcing it on the institutional level, which really helped he significantly to unlock the journey. Now the journey continues. And I think uh, this country still survives because we have um, good leadership. Mm -hmm. We pray that this kind of leadership would continue to the next generation. I've heard you say many times that the new president wanted you guys to identify as Rwandans, that we're all Rwandans. And you also just mentioned about how they would let the killers go and they would ask for forgiveness. 
how hard was it for people to actually forgive? I mean, I know you said they wanted to know where their dead were buried and that was you know, a big deal to them. But God had to have done something in the hearts of the people who lost people to give them this supernatural ability to look at the person who killed their loved ones and say, I forgive you. Yes, but also we have to understand that justice was administered. Uh, they just could not get off. The killers were in the general, the killers, all the people who were involved in the genocide were, they were, were put in different categories. They were master planners of the genocide. Uh, uh, there were some group that were next to the master planners, but there were also masses of people who actually got involved in robbing and breaking houses and attacking people, uh, not because that was their lifestyle, but they were lied. Mm -hmm. This is the history. You might have seen that in the museum. For a number of years, they had some teaching in schools in the education system about those people, that they're going to kill you, that those people are a cockroach, and those people are, uh, they, are, they have a tail, they're not like a regular human being. They had brainwashed the community and the society about ethnic, one ethnic group, which is not very different in all situations where they have a genocide. First and foremost, they dehumanize the person. Yeah. and the tribe or the ethnic group. After dehumanizing them, then they actually show the other group that these people are a threat. They're going to destroy you. They're going to take away your... They're going to they're gonna do things that will actually mess up your life because they are not human beings like other human beings. That's what they did. So there's that group of people, masses, that were actually near in... They were not innocent, but they were mobilized like peer pressure into doing what they did, and they asked for forgiveness. So we had what we call gachacha courts, and gachacha courts are traditional Rwandan courts of reconciliation. So within the fabric of the culture, that kind of court existed, that judicial system, whereby uh, the judicious, that kind of judicial system was used traditionally to stop revenge mm. in any situation. So that's what really they pulled out, and those people were let go. They had to serve sent their sentence by serving the community. So, like, they would rebuild the homes. They would do, do a lot of community service. For Did years. the community welcome them back? The community would welcome back those people and observe them. They would come back and they would be observed, but they would also be limited on where they can go. Yeah. Like they, say, they didn't have the freedom to go everywhere. Mm -hmm. They were confined in one location. They could not even leave the country. They would test to see what actually is going to be the outcome. Then the rest of the people were kept, were kept in prisons. They are still in prisons. A number of them have a life sentence. So we decided to take away executions. 
and provide because institutions in this culture would not work. They would not work because um, they would look at it as a revenge. Mm-hmm. And that would just cause you more problems, uh, rehearse the, the hatred. <coughs> so they, they serve a life prison, mm-hmm. imprisonment. Some have a number of years, and more of them, as they get old and age, they release them out of the prison. They serve their prison service and get out. Uh, on this trip, when I was here, we met a gentleman not having anything to do with African in life. We just met him, and he takes a vacation every single year, some of his vacation days, and he goes to prison, and he um, visits the man who killed his family. Mm-hmm. And he actually isn't even a Christian. And as a Christian myself, I was struck by the forgiveness that he's willing to offer. Um, And it feels like the country is that. I mean, I look around and I think, how did this happen within my lifetime, within your lifetime? You know, it seems so foreign that this could even happen. And it worries me that could we see this again in another country? I mean, it's so very scary, but it's been 25 years since um, the culmination of the genocide, uh, which had been happening for years previously to that. What is Rwanda like today, now, 25 years later? (laughs) You know, the whole concept of new heaven and new earth, that's how I can compare it. Now, we're not yet in heaven Mm -hmm. to really see how heaven is gonna look like. But to us, it's like, we call it new Rwanda. the change is enormous from culture, from to forgiveness, to economy, to roads, to housing, to education. It's like this country went so deep in terms of a fall that we had no more place to go. Mm. We just had to come out. And the country has continued to grow. Um, We are the safest country in this region. I mean, we are serious about security. We are the safest person, I mean, care place around this entire area. In fact, I'm more safe in Kigali than I can be in some areas of Chicago. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can drive anywhere in the middle of the night and get there and no one is gonna touch you. So the country has changed, has become so safe, um, nearly everywhere. Uh, uh, Rwandans keep the law of the land like the last dot, legalistically. Uh, some people would even wonder how we we do it. They think we don't have freedom, mm-hmm. but we think the for the insecurity we tested, the whole idea of keeping peace and keeping the law is number one. Mm. Yeah, well, it's evident here, and I have said numerous times since I've been here, um, if I came in and, you know, had been living on another planet and did not know your history, it would not be evident no. as, a, as someone who didn't know. Um, and so coming in as someone who knew about it um, and is continuing to learn about it, I am so impressed by the country of Rwanda. You know, it's a miracle. It's a miracle nation. Uh, many people say they've never seen this anywhere. I haven't seen it anywhere. I mean, Sudan hasn't recovered. Mm-hmm. Somalia hasn't recovered. Libya 
seems to be very far from recovery, and this country has recovered. It's a miracle. I mean, the country that I live in, the United States of America, I think ha has not recovered from a lot of things. And so when I come into here and see this, I think, what a beautiful thing. I was telling one of your colleagues today, actually, at lunch, that um, I, I heard um, one of your, an, another colleagues say that something had to have overcome these men. It was so evil. It was so evil to think that you could kill your neighbor and in some instances kill your wife. I mean, it was so evil. But I said on the flip side, it seems so supernatural, the other side. And so there's this, you look at Rwanda and you see how evil evil can be and you see how gracious God and forgiveness and love, what that can change a person's heart and life. God is redemptive. He has actually redeemed this country. Yeah. You can see redemption everywhere. And God continues to work in this country. Well, I have been so honored to visit your country and to get to know you and your beautiful wife and your family and visit your church and visit your schools and everything that African New Life is doing. So um, thanks for welcoming me in to your country. And if there's one thing Rwandans are, is you guys are hospitable. You guys are welcoming to everybody that comes in here. Yes. Thank you. Yes. That's beautiful. Thank yes. you. Well, thank you. Thank you, Pastor Charles. Oh, thank you. Thank you for coming to Rwanda. Yes. I'll yeah. be back. I'll hey, be back. Please come back. Yeah. Yes, I will. Come back many, many times. I will, I will. Yeah. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. Oh my gosh, Aaron, this was such a great interview for me. I mean, by the time I recorded this, I had spent about eight days in this beautiful country, and I mean beautiful country. I had visited the memorial sites, I had seen the grave sites, and I had seen some of the propaganda that he talked about in this one particular museum that we went through. I must say that Rwanda was an absolute beautiful country to visit. Not only the actual physical beauty of the country, but the people are wonderful and beautiful. And you were able to take one of our kids with us, which was extraordinary for them too. And I have to admit, I was pretty jealous the entire time, just seeing the amazing people that you got to meet, you and I even having a good friend here that works on our staff uh, that's from Rwanda. And I know you had read a few books a few years ago about the Rwandan genocide, and we're so excited about visiting the country. As you got there, was it what you expected? Absolutely not. If you did not know the history and you happen to find yourself at a memorial, you would not know that this country endured a genocide of a little over a quarter of a century ago. I love when Pastor Charles said, when he sat down with me, he said, God is redemptive. He has actually redeemed this country. You can see redemption everywhere, and God continues to work in this country. It is so very true. And next time I go, you have to go with me. I would love to. I mean, seeing pictures was extraordinary, but even some of the things you were telling me about, not only is there a story of redemption, but even as you're walking around the city, you would talk about how it feels redeemed. Like it feels like it's been beautified. The people interact with each other differently. And I definitely want to go. When Pastor Charles talked about the leadership that led Rwanda after the genocide, the one that declared that they were not going to rehearse the pain anymore. That whole concept is absolutely amazing, uh, but I'm sure it's difficult too. Gospel-centered, but very difficult, right? Very difficult. I mean, I want to rehearse pain in my own life, but when you hear him talk about what his country has endured, 
the promises they have made to be one people group in that country and to not rehearse the pain, you see why that country is on the track to healing that they are. It was amazing to see with my own eyes, and I am so thankful that you all got to hear this conversation today. Thank you so much, Pastor Charles and his wife and their church and their organization for teaching us so much about how we are to love as God has loved us. Today's show was mixed and mastered by the team at Podshaper. The music was developed for the show by Matt Graham. On the other side is organized by Lindsay Sweeney. We are your hosts, Aaron and Jamie Ivy, and you can find us on Instagram. You can find me at Aaron Ivy ATX. And you can find me at Jamie Ivy. Also, check out my other podcasts, The Happy Hour with Jamie Ivy, wherever you listen to podcasts. <laughs>